0: Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina.
1: Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina is now sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court.
2: Good morning everybody uh, welcome to the historic courthouse here in Morganton and uh, your Supreme Court uh, uh, certainly uh, appreciates the hospitality of all the folks here in Burke County and in Morganton uh, in 2004 well our state Constitution provides that we will hold court in Raleigh and such other places as designated by the General Assembly. In 2004, uh, the historic courthouse in Edenton wanted that designation for us to come to Edenton and hold court, and so the General Assembly saw fit to do that. And then in 2015, I think it was, somewhere in there, uh, Justice Irvin and I uh, went to the General Assembly. Uh, Senator Daniel, certainly, I think he sponsored the bill to allow uh, Morganton to be the site where we would come in the west. Um, this uh, setting is certainly uh, appropriate for the Supreme Court since uh, in the eighteen uh, late 1840s through the early 1860s, the Supreme Court would come here and hold court in August. So uh, in some ways, I guess we're just returning home. But again, we appreciate all the hospitality uh, that the folks uh, here uh, provide for us in our visits. Um, You see six of us, but we have seven on the court. Uh, Justice Hudson is joining us, but she's having to do so from home. Uh, She's going through all the protocols. Um, uh, We hope uh, that uh, she is feeling well, and um, she may uh, participate uh, just by uh, uh, texting in some questions to Justice Irvin. so if you see him checking his phone it's not social media it is uh, uh, checking to see if uh, Justice Hudson is uh, submitting some questions she will participate in the decision in all the cases that we'll have uh, but she is uh, viewing it remotely uh, we are live streaming this for uh, anyone who desires uh, You know, we look at the bright lining of COVID and uh, one of those uh, bright linings uh, are our uh, uses of technology. And we live stream now all of our uh, Supreme Court arguments. So here in Morganton and Burke County, uh, you're able to watch uh, the exhilarating arguments that are made before our court Uh, So, uh, after you sit through this morning, uh, you're going to be hooked on, man, when when can I see the next one? Well, uh, stay tuned. Uh, Speaking of COVID, um, sadly, one of the attorneys in Case uh, 6 told us yesterday that there had been a positive COVID test. So, for any of you that know anybody who is scheduled to be here tomorrow for the third case, which is our case six. Please let them know there will not be a, an argument for case six tomorrow. Uh, you know, it's uh, just part of the world in which uh, we live right now is, uh, you know, we keep hoping and praying that COVID will be something in the rearview mirror and just when we think it might be, it pops up in the windshield again. So. Anyway, uh, all those uh, little announcements being said, uh, our first case this morning is n L-N-H, and we will hear from the appellant.
3: Good morning, Chief Justice Newby and Associate Justices. May it please the court. My name is Mercedes Chutt. I'm arguing on behalf of the appellant petitioner, the Guilford County Department of Health and Human Services. Um, My colleague, um, Mr. Matthew Wensche, is arguing on behalf of the Guardian ad litem. We will be sharing our time. We hope to have 12 minutes each and six minutes for rebuttal. It is our plan that I will um, argue about the ineffective assistance of counsel issue and the evidentiary issues and that Mr. Wenshee will argue about the issue pertaining to whether um, in, in deciding dependency the court can consider post-petition evidence. Um, so Starting with the ineffective assistance of counsel uh, issue, um, this case has significant implications for ineffective assistance of counsel because it is the, uh, the department's position that it sets the bar so low for ineffective assistance of counsel or IAC claims. Um, in this case, the uh, mother's counsel um, did not object to evidence that had been admitted in a prior proceeding. The evidence at issue was the medical records pertaining to the injuries of the child. Um, the facts of this case are that a child, the minor child who was 10 weeks old sustained burns um, to her feet and had swelling in the abdominal area. The major issue, the major, the biggest injury was the burns to the feet. The medical records established the child did receive burns to the feet as well as swelling in her abdomen and that she was hospitalized for two days.
1: Ms. Chut, just to ask you a question about the content of the record there. Many of these issues involve references to the medical to the medical records. There are some medical records in the printed record. Are those the medical records that uh, we're supposed to consider in evaluating issues in which the medical records are relevant?
3: Um, yes, Your Honors. So the medical records in this at issue are, were contained in a reasonable efforts report. And those are on pages 20 to 33 of the record.
1: So when when you and Mr. Wollinger and Mr. Miller talk about the medical records, those pages are the records that we need to look at? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. There's there's not a separate exhibit or anything like that?
3: No, Your Honor. Um, So what had happened was...
2: Before you go too far, can you explain how the report would have been used? Um, Was it just presented to the court or um, uh, was it... uh, you know, how did it become part of the record, I guess, is what I'm asking you
3: about. Right. And So, we don't really know the answer to that question because the hearing, there was a seven-day hearing, which is a hearing of the need for continued non-secure custody, which by statute has to occur if the parent does not waive those hearings. And one of the things that the court can look at in a seven-day hearing is whether there is um, a reasonable basis to believe that there was abuse and neglect and so forth occurred. We don't know what happened at that hearing because it, there's no transcript and nothing in the record shows what was happened at the hearing. There's no narration of evidence or anything. All we know is that following that hearing, the court entered an order, um, which is um, in the record on page 35, in which the court found that the, um, the reasonable efforts report was admitted into evidence. Um, and, it, and it incorporated the reasonable efforts report into evidence. And so in terms of was an objection made at that time? Um, did the mother consent to it? I think there's an allegation, that, um, or it was in Mr. Miller's brief, that the mother consented to the records coming in. It's not in the record. Nothing, the only thing in the record that gives any evidence to what happened is that order that's on page 35 of the record for the court found that the medical records were admitted into evidence and incorporated them by, by reference.
4: Aside from the attorney's failure to object to those records coming into evidence, in all other respects, was the attorney vibrant and active in terms of representing the mother's interests?
3: He absolutely was. Um, and one thing, so the attorney made he objected to, made several objections. Um, he cross examined witnesses. Um, made a closing argument and I think one thing that's really important to note is I think the Court of Appeals um, assumed that the trial judge relied on hearsay in the medical records in making its findings a fact. The medical records contain hearsay about reports from neighbors or observers about how the child was injured. Um,
4: Would would this court be setting a relatively a uh, low bar for ineffective assistance of counsel if on one hand counsel was in all other respects being very active in terms of representing a party's interest, but yet on the other hand but for one perhaps strategic or perhaps otherwise omission in representation that we would be holding such to be ineffective assistance of counsel.
3: My concern is that the low bar requires counsel to object after the judge has already ruled. Um, The record is very clear that all the attorneys believed that the judge had already ruled on the issue of the admissibility of the medical records. Um, Note that this was the same judge um, that was hearing the adjudicatory hearing that presided over that seven-day hearing where the medical records came in. And there was an agreement among counsel that the judge had already ruled. And I think it's problematic to establish a standard for ineffective assistance of counsel that requires counsel to continue to object after the judge has already ruled.
4: Is it your position then that it is not so much the quantity of errors or omissions that a counsel may make, but the aspect of how pivotal it is in terms of even one singular omission?
3: Well, I mean, I'm sure one singular omission could establish an effective assistance of counsel in some cases. My argument for this case is there was no error. Um, what The record doesn't reflect that there was any error, and in ineffective assistance of counsel cases, the cold record needs to reflect that there was an error.
1: Is, is, is your argument to this point then that everything that's admitted into evidence at a non-secure custody hearing then becomes, is already admitted and can be considered at a subsequent adjudication hearing?
3: I think when you're talking about a narrow evidentiary issue as to whether or not records were admitted. Well, can't, can't,
1: let me, if that wasn't clear, let me try again no. then. Uh, the, I, the, the, the medical records in question were attached to something that was admitted into evidence we don't know under what circumstances at a hearing held for the purpose of determining whether non-secure custody should be continued, right? Correct. Is it your contention that anything admitted at that hearing is then deemed admissible at a subsequent adjudication hearing?
3: Not necessarily, no. Um, But I do.
1: How do do we know what is and what isn't then?
3: Because in this case, the judge made a finding of fact that it was admitted. um, But
1: but assuming that it was admitted at the non-secure custody hearing, whatever the piece of evidence is, is that evidence then because of the fact that it was admitted at a non-secure custody hearing admissible in an adjudication hearing?
3: In, in this case, I think the answer is yes, because everyone agreed well, why, about why, the admissibility. Why would, why,
1: why would there be a different rule depending upon what kind of evidence we're talking about, which is where I think you seem to be headed?
3: I mean, it's just a gray area. So this court has held that um, courts can take judicial notice of um, findings of fact in proceedings that do not, um, do not require the rules of evidence and, do not, and have a lower evidentiary standard. And I think the, the, what is supposed to be the safeguard here in terms of what's probative evidence and what is it, is a trial court. Because the judge, the trial judge sitting without a jury, is presumed to disregard incompetent evidence. So um, I don't think there's anything in this record that would establish the judge did not disregard the hearsay reports as to how the injuries occur.
1: Where, where, do, what? If that's information was disregarded, then where is the evidentiary support for the findings concerning the? Uh, holding of the uh, lighter or whatever it was to the child's foot, to the uh, leaving the child on the porch, to the neighbors intervening—if it does—if the support for those findings isn't from uh, the, re- the testimony of the uh, social worker, which was expressly admitted for purposes other than hearsay, or from portions of the medical records. Where does the support for those findings come?
3: Okay, so so to answer your question, the court did make findings about the report, and the findings about the report are necessary to show that the department had jurisdiction to investigate this family.
1: And I don't think anybody questions that, but I mean, there also isn't it important whether those things actually happened as a matter of fact?
3: It it actually is not. Okay. um, To answer your question, so the reason why is because. It isn't necessary to establish causation to show either neglect or abuse. So for abuse, one only needs to show that a child received injuries that were not accidental in the care of the parent. Um, it isn't necessary for the court to determine how the injuries occur. With neglect, it's only necessary to show that the child was in an injurious environment and as we all know, that the fault of the parent is not an element in either abuse or neglect. And if you read the order carefully, I would submit that the trial court did not find that the mother had done all the things that the so-called neighbors reported. So the trial court didn't find the mother had, um, you know, swiped the lighter over the child's feet, poured, sprayed some green liquid on the child, beat the child in the stomach. The trial court did not find that. That was the so-called neighbor's report. The trial court only found that the child was injured. And if you notice, all the, all the findings are past, their passive voice was injured. The injury occurred in the mother's care. But not that it happened the way the neighbors reported it to happen.
5: But wouldn't those findings of um, the parent's fault and causation be necessary for the trial court's the part of the order that eliminated reunification and reasonable reunification efforts for the mother at this initial permanency planning order?
3: Well, in my opinion, no, because if you look at the catch-all provision under um, 7b901cf, the um, reunification efforts can be ceased by any conduct that enhances the character or the abuse or neglect, and my argument you know, it is there that basically for neglect, for example, it isn't necessary to show the child um, was actually injured for neglect. It's a risk of injury. Um, and also, it's not necessary for either abuse or neglect to show the se- that the child was seriously injured.
5: But, and but wouldn't it be necessary to show that the parent was in some way at fault or caused the injuries in order to eliminate reunification as part of the plan?
3: In my opinion, that's not in the statute. Uh, if you look at the catch-all provision, it only states that, that, the, that there has to be some evidence to enhance the character of the abuse and neglect. Also, the court can consider those reports, um, the hearsay reports, at disposition.
5: Then and, uh, just one other quick question, because I know you're running out of time. Um, it, 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 isn't it true at the seven-day hearing that the mother was not represented by counsel? She did not have counsel yet. I do not know that. Because I, wasn't there an order appointing her counsel at that same hearing?
3: There may have been, and I don't, I, that I don't know the answer to. I'd have to look at the record. Um, that could be the case. Thank you. Um, so, my point with um, IAC and effective assistive counsel is simply that I mean, here you have to, I, I would argue there wasn't a mistake made by this attorney. Um, I don't think it's a mistake to agree among counsel. That something has already been admitted into evidence, and I don't think that the standard should be such that counsel is required to continue to object, ask a judge to reconsider their ruling when it's already been made. And I would argue there's okay. nothing in the record to suggest.
1: Miss Chut doesn't. Don't our appellate procedure rules require uh, provide in essence that if evidence that evidence is admitted without objection, uh, even though it might have been objected to at some other time, the objections waived.
3: I mean, you're saying that the no, parent. It, but well no, I, I think so. I mean, I think that the objection would have been waived. Um, and I think that's another problem. You know, that, that I think this is just a real stretch here to say that this. This attorney did anything wrong, particularly when I mean, you look at the. If you look at the transcript too, I mean, even in his closing arguments, page 25 of the transcript, he makes the argument again that the judge should not consider the hearsay reports about the neighbors, what the neighbors saw, in, um, in the court's adjudication, and. He objected when that came in, in terms of having it being used for the truth of the matter asserted. So I, I think it's a case where you just it's hard to find what the attorney did wrong at all. Okay, and my time is up. Thank you.
2: Thank you, counsel.
0: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. My name is Matt Wanch. I'm appellate counsel for the Guardian Ad Litem Program, and I represent the juvenile Leah before you today. Um, I'm going to focus on the dependency issue, but I did want to respond in one way to Justice Earl's question about the the ceasing and the evidentiary issue with this with the ceasing part of the order. Um, I don't want to step on Ms. Chut's issue here, but. I did just want to mention that, that causational finding, I think, that Your Honor, could um, the findings to support ceasing are dispositional findings. And so they don't need to be made according to the rules of evidence. It's, it's whatever the trial court finds to be relevant and reliable evidence. Hearsay is expressly allowed in disposition. Um, so even if there was a hearsay issue with that evidence required to make the finding a fact that Your Honor was talking about, it wouldn't matter. Um, for a dispositional finding. But the the issue that I want to focus on before you today is the dependency and the post-petition evidence issue. Your Honors, if we have a system where different rules apply at different cases, we can't do justice for all children and families. And that's what we have right now. We have an ad hoc rule for what evidence is admissible to support adjudications of abuse, neglect, and dependency, particularly dependency as the case law has evolved. Um, so there are three main points that I want to focus on as I talk with you about this issue today. The first is that the plain language of the juvenile code is clear that the critical moment for an adjudication is, or the, the critical determination, is the existence or nonexistence of the allegations in a, in a petition. Second, that limiting adjudications to that particular moment in time provides clarity for all the parties involved, for for parents, for children, for DSS, frankly, who has the burden of proving those allegations. And that certainty is good in in any context, but particularly in this context, where the issues are so important. So there should not be an exception for post-petition evidence to come in at adjudication. And then finally, as an alternative, if the court wants to continue to um, extend this this post-petition evidence exception, that it should truly be narrow in scope, that it should truly be for immutable conditions, for things that are truly fixed and ongoing, um, not ad hoc to be decided on a case-by-case basis. Turning to the first point, Your Honors, the plain language of 7B802, which is the determinative statute here, statute here, says that the existence or non-existence of any of the allegations alleged in the petition is the determination the trial court has to make at adjudication. That is, that's the plain language of the statute. It's unambiguous. The, the analogy that I think of is to an indictment in a criminal case. Now it's not the same determination because we're not proving fault. It's about the status of the child, not the fault of the parents. That's another very important consideration here. Um, but there is an allegation that has to be proven or not. And there's a particular time at which that happens. I look back at the history of the statute, and that has been the same since it was enacted more than 20 years ago. That moment is the one that was fixed at the, as the moment that matters. And the initial case law from the Court of Appeals was very clear, in Ray N-Ray Jr., where parents had asked for the court to make an exception to that rule. No, that this, the, the plain language of the statute is unambiguous. That's the point in time that um, the, the General Assembly has set, and so that's what is going to have to be evaluated. What were the conditions at the time the, peti- the petition was filed? Post-petition evidence, those cases... Well, let's,
1: let's talk about the language of the, stac- the statute in a second. It says adjudicate the existence or non-existence of any of the conditions alleged in the petition. I mean, I could probably, if I put my mind to it, interpret that two or three different ways if I thought about it a little bit. The issue is you have to find the condition, which would be either abuse, neglect, or dependency. As of, uh, it doesn't say, as of the time of the petition, it says alleged in the petition, the condition alleged in the petition. Why should we read that language the way, the, to be plain and unambiguous in the sense that you have argued in your brief and argued it here again this morning?
0: Well, Your Honor, I think the, the language is plain in that it's saying that the, the existence or non-existence of any of the conditions alleged in the petition, it, that fixes the point in time at which the trial court is supposed to evaluate the evidence. So evidence of things that happened after the petition necessarily were not conditions that were alleged in the petition and those conditions could change in either direction you know we have a relatively short window of 60 days from when a petition is filed to when an adjudication hearing is supposed to happen and and you see in the case law it it going to the benefit of one party or the other in different cases conditions could improve conditions could worsen post-petition evidence, and and maybe I need to clarify, too, what I mean by post-petition evidence. I've just been using that term um, without really explaining what I mean by that. I don't mean um, evidence that, that came to light later of conditions as they were at the time of the petition. I mean evidence of conditions after the petition was filed. So circumstances, well, okay. that, I apologize let me, let me, if that me, was not clear. Let me make
1: sure I understand what you're saying, Dan. In, in, in this issue, the real, in this case, the real issue appears to be whether there was an adequate alternative arrangement for the care of the child. We've got some folks, I mean, and I understand your argument that mother didn't present some of these people, but putting that aside, let's say hypothetically, the uh, the mother had suggested these other folks that came to DSS. and offered to take, uh, assume responsibility for caring for the child. Uh, if, as a matter of fact, at the time of the hearing, these folks were an adequate child care alternative, would that preclude a finding of uh, dependency?
0: No, I don't. I don't believe so, Your Honor. And that and is why, why
1: not because you, I think I understood you to concede that if the fact existed at the time of the uh, petition, then you could consider it, even though it might involve, uh, you know, other. You know, other information
0: over a broader period of
1: time. Why would, why would?
0: Oh well, if I'm sorry, I apologize. If I said it that way, I misspoke, Your well, Honor. That's the way I understood it. Okay, and I, I apologize. The reason I asked you
1: about it was because I did not think that was consistent with what I'd understood your argument to be.
0: No, I I mean evidence of of conditions that evolved that could not have been known at the time of the petition. So that that's the condition. That's the circumstances we have
1: here. But, but, but in in the so you're saying that in the event that these folks were in actuality. As of the date of the p- petition, capable of providing care for the child, that evidence doesn't have any bearing upon whether the, the uh, juvenile was dependent?
0: Not if it comes to light post petition, correct, Your Honor. So, so it, so, that's a so disposition. You
1: so, so your argument is even though it may have been a fact as of the time of the petition, if uh, that wasn't known to somebody, I don't know who we're talking about exactly, DSS, the court, whatever uh, that fact doesn't have any bearing upon whether this child was dependent.
0: That's right, Your Honor, because it's not an allegation in the petition. The allegations in the petition are that there's no caretaker, um, no, I'm sorry, the parents are incapable and there's no alternative caretaker available. And so, the, the DSS agency who has the burden at that point is responsible for showing or not showing, trial court's responsible for finding or not finding those conditions as alleged in the petition. The post-petition evidence, and, and this case is a good example of that, in that you have the relatives who offer themselves forward, um, but you can see in the record, the, the evaluations don't come in until after the fact, after the petition is filed.
1: Well, is, is the important thing what DSS thinks about them, or what in fact was their set of circumstances?
0: Well, I think it's what's known at that time, Your Honor, so it's not really a question of what they no, think known, about known, them. Known to whom? well-known to the trial court, most importantly.
1: Well, the trial court's only gonna hear it sometime later, it's not gonna hear it at the time of the petition, so I'm having trouble seeing why the trial court's knowledge would be determinative of what was was true as of the time of of the petition.
0: Well, because there was no party that knew it at that time. I mean, in this case, Your Honor, in particular, we have the relatives who come forward, they aren't offered by the mother as a potential placement. Only after the fact is it determined that they are, and one of them is a good placement for the child. Ultimately, as it should be, that's a dispositional issue, and it's a good result, I think, for everyone involved, is that the child is placed with a relative. It's a dispositional decision that is made if that placement is appropriate, and it turned out to be in this case. The problem we have is conditions change. Child care placement options change over time. Again, we're talking about a relatively short window between the time a petition is filed and the time an adjudication should be heard, but things can change back and forth in that time. A relative could move, their home could change. Um, As we had in this case, you have another family member living in the home who needed to leave before it became an appropriate home to place this child. So that's something I think even evaluating the evidence we had about that placement at it was not appropriate at the time the petition was filed. That had to happen before it could be approved and before it became a placement option for the child here. So even in that window, it doesn't really work. But what we have now is cases going up to the Court of Appeals and different panels deciding, okay, what is a, a fixed and ongoing circumstance and reaching different results. Um, we have, we have um, paternity which to me sort of stands out as the one fixed and ongoing circumstance that isn't going to change once it's established. We have one panel saying um, substance misuse. Well, the the parent has addressed her substance misuse since the the petition was filed, and so now that's that's a fixed and ongoing circumstance. We have another panel um, talking about housing, unstable housing. Well, that's been resolved. Now that's a fixed and ongoing circumstance. I think anybody that works in this area of law knows that those are extremely, extremely um, changeable circumstances. They are not fixed and ongoing. They are what our cases are about, that parents have a substance misuse problem and relapse and, and get back on track and relapse. And unfortunately, it's a sad story, but it's, it's the kind that we see over and over again. So I, I urge the court, if the court is inclined to keep the exception, I think the bright line, clearest answer is to go back to the AB standard, to the statutory standard that I argued for to make it the evidence at the time the petition was filed. What were the conditions at the time the petition was filed? But if the court is going to keep the, um, the exception, to truly narrow it, and I, I cannot... I, I've thought about this a lot. I cannot think of another condition that is analogous to paternity in this way, that is truly fixed and ongoing, that is not going to change over time. Um, it's just not the nature of our cases. And I, I, I apologize. I see that I've eaten into our rebuttal time. So if the court has no further questions, I will, I will just ask you to reverse the Court of Appeals.
2: Thank you, counsel. Thank you. We'll hear from the F.L.A. <clears throat>
6: Mr. Chief Justice, uh, Associate Justices, I'm Jeff Miller uh, from Greenville, North Carolina. Uh, It's an honor to be here uh, today representing uh, the respondent mother, Loretta Ford, uh, and the correctness of the Court of Appeals decision uh, in this case. Um, To get right to the heart of the matter, um, it is my position that there is not a high bar or a low bar for effective assistance of counsel. There is a bar that we hold licensed attorneys to that's reasonable, that has objective standards uh, of practice, Uh, and when there's a failure, we recognize it as a deficiency. Uh, It is not a criticism, necessarily, of the person. It is a bar in the practice that's an important one. And in this case, the lawyer failed to object to the only evidence that supported the trial court's decision and adjudication, the hearsay evidence with regard to the mother's conduct and behaviors, and the ultimate status of the child. I would point out one thing that I think is important as we look at this, and I know that we speak a lot about the status of the child and nobody being at fault, but if you read the definitions of an abused juvenile it requires that the parent inflict, or allow to be inflicted, the harm to the child. Uh, So it does require conduct on the part of the parent. Similarly, in injurious environment cases, you might have an innocent parent, and a parent who keeps a child in an injurious environment. Just because there's an innocent parent who's not at fault that child's status can still be a neglected juvenile. In this case, the only evidence that came before the trial court that supported its order was evidence that was not admissible because it was hearsay evidence. It was not competent, it was not clear and convincing evidence, and it was not evidence that our statutes say we must rely upon when we adjudicate in these constitutionally important cases cases that involve fundamental family relationships.
4: Didn't the trial court say that the evidence was being admitted, uh, by the trial court not for the substance of it, but merely to, uh, respect what DSS was saying, which was, this was the way in which DSS came to be involved in the first, or DHHS came to be involved in the first place?
6: Uh, Justice Morgan, there are two instances, uh, with regard to the identical evidence. And the first instance had to do with the report itself. And when that testimony was proffered as the reason why DHHS became involved, this trial counsel objected, objected to that evidence as hearsay. And it was acknowledged by DHHS and by the court that it was not being admitted for its truth. So that objection prevailed. To some extent, though, the court's order seemed to, and I think the Court of Appeals felt, seem to use that evidence in its decision. The second occasion, though, is where the lawyer's failure comes into play. And this is critical, because the evidence that was involved came into play at a non-secure custody hearing, where evidence, hearsay evidence, is admissible and is appropriate for that temporary and that limited decision protocol. And we know, in this case, The the court's finding says that it was accepted into the record as part of today's evidence, a previous exhibit admitted in May 10, 2010. Doesn't say how it was admitted, doesn't say anything about there was a a subpoena or that there was a witness or anything of that nature, but it was admitted by judicial notice, Not, not through any authentication or offer, and the record is clear what happened. And I have indicated that it is a bit galling to say we don't know what happened. We do know. The record shows that a reasonable efforts report to which this limited medical record was attached was submitted on May the 10th when Loretta did not have a lawyer. Her lawyer, the record shows, was appointed May the 10th. And Loretta, at that time, consented to the non-secure custody order because she just got served with a petition that day, she just got a lawyer that day, and nothing had really been decided in the case.
4: But as to ineffective assistance of counsel, wouldn't we as a court be perhaps dangerously lowering the standard for ineffective assistance of counsel if counsel was in all other respects, even including the first opportunity, to enter an objection which (coughs) was sustained? to be able to uh, say nonetheless that the counsel was somehow deficient?
6: I think that the case law, at least the Court of Appeals case law, is very clear that when hearsay evidence is the only evidence that supports an adjudication, that it is prejudicial error to not object to that and to allow that evidence to come before the court. We're not lowering the bar. And as a lawyer who practices in the courts, we ought to maintain a high bar for practice. We ought not to be saying to DHHS, to the courts, or to lawyers practicing in our juvenile courts where children are being taken away daily, adopted out, where families are disrupted uh, for periods of time. We ought not to be saying to them, well, we've got a low bar if you don't object to the only evidence, the only evidence that will establish the adjudication of a child as abused or
1: neglected. And in this case... Mr. Mr. Miller, let me, to follow up on on, uh, the question that you were just asked, uh, I had generally understood that if, that we looked at allegations of ineffective ineffective assistance of counsel on an issue-by-issue basis rather than trying to evaluate whether the lawyer's overall performance was adequate. Do you... Your Your Honor, I, I, honestly, I've,
6: I've been involved in a lot of cases where ineffective assistance uh, is, is alleged and where it, sometimes the Court of Appeals or uh, this Court on occasions uh, uh, notices it. And it is indeed, on, I think, on a case-by-case basis. And where we get into the questionable area is if we can discern any strategic or litigation purpose in what the lawyer has done
1: rather than some on its face deficiency. Well, and I guess that was going to be my next question. I I think this court has held in a criminal case is the question of whether an attorney acted on the basis of a strategic or tactical decision was a question of fact so that we shouldn't hypothesize whether there was actually a decision made but it required a factual finding as to whether that was the case or not.
6: And in looking at this case, there is no way for for this court or anyone to even say that there's a factual issue here about
1: a strategy or a litigation purpose. Well, I mean, for, for, let me let me posit you a situation and see what you think about it. Uh, the information to which you object is contained in a number of places in the record. You've already talked about the testimony of the social worker. There's also a summary of these statements in the medical record. Uh, admittedly you have hearsay upon hearsay issues with respect to the medical records, but would it be a tactical decision to say in effect if they really want to take the time to bring in the custodian for these medical records they could get them authenticated anyway, I'm going to look bad if I waste the court's time making them prove something that they can prove pretty easily if they just bring somebody else here. Therefore, in order to avoid (coughs) irritating the court, I'm not going to make them do that. Would that be an unreasonable decision, in your view, assuming that that was the decision that was made?
6: Um, Your Honor, if you're asking me, I'm going to say very clearly and without hesitation it's an unreasonable choice to say I'm not going to put DHHS to the test that the statute requires in order to adjudicate abuse and neglect and, in effect, as happened in this case, terminate a parent's entire rights.
1: Of course, at the, at the time that the Council did or didn't object, it would have been a little hard for the Council to know that you get the subsequent finding of a lack of, reunif- you know, no necessity for reunif- reunification.
6: Um, in, in- in this case, Judge, I don't believe that there was any question about what the posture was going into the trial, but the record is not clear on that. I will have to concede no, because that because it
1: In looking at it, it appears to me to be something that came up during the course of the hearing. I didn't see anything. I may be wrong, and please point me to it if I am. I didn't see anything earlier on that asked for a cessation of efforts of reunification at this hearing before the hearing. Um,
6: there was not notice of cessation of reunification given in writing in any sense in the case. Counsel did, in, um, in a statement of the court, ask that the permanency planning about the reunification be continued and not be held uh, at that time. Um, but, but what I want to say, Judge, is Justice uh, Irvin, is this issue is not a low bar issue. It is a hearsay issue. It is a fundamental evidence issue, a matter of law, that is clear. There is no excuse for saying, I'm not going to put somebody to the test. The truth is, is that that record, we don't even know who's saying things. We don't know where these statements came from, how many neighbors are involved, how many observers are involved, who's saying what to who. We don't know any of that.
1: So, so in, in your view then, and I've got one more question beyond no, this one. But this one. Excuse me, this is one that Justice Hudson wanted to ask. We're going to try this technique for a while. What, in your opinion, should the lawyer have done specifically uh, at the hearing? In terms of the
6: request at the trial, should have objected to the uh, judicial notice of a non secure custody order document that was introduced with hearsay in it. Because, and, and there is a Court of Appeals decision, the JMCJM. Case that explains the dangers and the problems with allowing uh, a court to take judicial notice of non secure custody, hearsay uh, type hearings, hearsay information in making adjudication decisions. They recognized that problem. And it is fundamental that if that is the only evidence that the lawyer has acted deficiently, that there is no question of prejudice, uh, and that there's a reasonable probability had that evidence not come in, a different result would have occurred with the adjudication of abuse and neglect. let's
1: Let's say, I mean, the Court of Appeals held, among other things, in its opinion, if I'm reading it incorrectly, tell me, but this is the way I read it. In essence, this evidence shouldn't have been admitted. Therefore, the findings lack sufficient evidentiary support. Therefore the adjudication is reversed. Is that a fair reading of their
6: the, order? The adjudication of abuse and neglect was reversed. Right. The dependency was a
1: different one. Right. Typically speaking, when you have an evidentiary issue, the remedy is a new hearing, not reversal for insufficiency of the evidence, isn't it?
6: Um, As I read the opinion, it reversed and remanded contemplating that there would be some type of new hearing. Okay. Um, It it reversed completely the dependency adjudication. Um, So I, I do think that it's absolutely important and critical that we recognize this was the only evidence that supported this entire order for the adjudication of abuse or neglect.
7: Uh, Mr. Miller, uh, yes. if I might interrupt, I'd like to take you back to your discussion about what abuse is and what neglect is, yes, and particularly neglect. The way, and again, setting aside your, your legal arguments about hearsay, uh, the way I read the uh, uh, the facts of this case is they were found in the order um, that this uh, the mother uh, took two shots of vodka, went to sleep, put a, her baby to bed, went to sleep, and woke up with her baby severely injured in the hospital. Um, How do you reconcile that to not be neglect when a mother goes to bed having had consumed alcohol and inexplicably her baby is carried off to the hospital?
6: There's a lot we don't know about what occurred at that time, but we do know that the law says injury alone is not sufficient to support a neglect adjudication. We do know that. We do know that taking a double shot of vodka is not neglect by a parent under any stretch uh, of the law and the determination. All we know, we don't even know who else lived at this residence. All we know is that this mother put her baby to sleep, took a double shot of vodka, and went to sleep herself like so many others do. How, How it transpired from that point on we don't know. There's not evidence in the record that allows this court to simply jump to an adjudication of neglect under the statute that makes it ma- makes the case basically on facts from which a court could make findings. It, it, that, that does not alone constitute that neglect. I,
1: th- I think Justice Hudson would like to ask, is there any evidence from which one could find that anyone else was the perpetrator of these injuries? Um,
6: of course, the burden is upon the the, the, the department. Um, I, the the evidence was sparse in this case on adjudication. I think it was about sixteen pages of a transcript, um, and it, like so many of these cases, um, there there are just assumptions made, uh, and practices conducted uh, very quickly, uh, without really figuring out what occurred. You know, this mother was never given an opportunity to explore with anybody what occurred she didn't remember she was very candid about that i want to also remind the court this is a young mother who had no prior history with the department who had no criminal record whose family said she was a good mother to her child always acted appropriately with her child who when she was arrested while she's in jail within the the course of just a few months completes parenting classes, anger management classes, is asking to have a therapist who is doing all things right. So we ought to have a lot of questions about what occurred here, what what did occur. And the evidence just is not there uh, sufficiently, clearly, convincingly, competently.
2: Well, there's, there's no dispute that this child's feet were severely burned. Um, Judge,
6: there was a partial thickness burn, and uh, and I will, I will say that is a serious injury. I will not try and argue about that issue at all. It's akin to, if you read the literature, sunburn, scalding with hot water kind of
2: burns. Well, it, it, it also got infected, at least in the left foot, uh, which uh, caused uh, some uh, follow-up visits, um, that type of thing. Uh, And there's also no dispute that um, the mother was arrested uh, for these injuries. Isn't that correct?
6: Um, There is no
2: question she was
6: arrested. She was in jail when she was uh, talked to um, uh, by the
2: the agent. Um, And and certainly we expect the role of of, uh, DHHS to protect. In this case, uh, the child was uh, about not even two months old. That's correct. This child was burned.
6: That's correct. Those facts are indisputable. There's not any question about that. The question is: Is what is the evidence that supports an adjudication under our juvenile law? And we have a standard for that. We have a rule of law. We have. We we are consistent that we defend the Constitution and the rule of law.
2: When a one and a one and a half two month old child has severe burns on her feet, uh, certainly that uh, her status, the status of the child, is having been neglected. The
6: The case law is clear that an injury alone is not uh, sufficient to adjudicate neglect. Um, I, I, I think there are numerous cases to that effect. It requires more and that's what I'm here about is, is it does require more. And and the problem in this case is not only was this mother treated so severely in terms of the error uh, that allowed the adjudication of neglect and abuse to occur, but in terms of the kind of mother she was and allowed no opportunity, she, in effect, had her parental rights terminated. She wasn't given an opportunity for WebEx visits with her child or for supervised visits Uh, with a sheriff or a family center or um, in in any type of relationship at all.
2: There's no dispute that medical records are routinely admitted into evidence in courts across the state with regard to hearsay exception. Isn't that true?
6: It it is true in a limited sense, Judge. There is case law, and I've cited State v. Smith, um, that hearsay statements within those medical records can still be subject to objection.
2: But we also know that one of the reasons that medical records are admitted is that uh, there's a, a common sense understanding that people give accurate statements to the medical providers well, for th- medical care.
6: Uh, Chief Justice Newby, that, that's correct, but it, it, it requires further explanation. That rule, the medical treatment exception is based upon the patient coming to a doctor and saying, here's what happened, here's what's wrong with me, and that they're motivated to tell the truth
2: about that. How and did this one-and-a-half-year-old child get to a medical provider? Did, Judge, the, mother, did the mother take her?
6: Judge, I, I, I was gonna go on. We do have an exception also that says parents of children can provide that information for these young, young children. Here, we don't even have a name. What we have are neighbors or observers, and we don't know how many of those
2: Where was the mother?
6: The mother was in her home, asleep.
2: Well, I think there's some testimony or evidence or statements that she ran away. The mother ran away? Yes. After, I mean, if you look at what the neighbors said, they said she got a lighter out, that she sprayed the the child with some kind of green liquid, that she hit her in the stomach, and then uh, when the neighbors came over, the neighbors said she ran away.
6: Um, The the actual testimony is, and and it's recited in my brief, says that the neighbors took the child from the mother and she went in the house. Um, And again, we don't know what happened with this mother. A single isolated incident, she doesn't remember and can't tell us. No one took the opportunity to even explore that. And, And I think that that's critical to remember in this case, Your Honor. It
1: is, it, the uh, record contains two different descriptions of statements that your client made to DSS uh, workers. One, I mean, the same witness testified to both of them. They were pretty similar. Uh, that evidence is admissible for the truth of the matter, asserted it. As I indicated in my brief,
6: I, there's no objection to that evidence, and, and, I, even,
1: and I, even if there had been, uh, you know, we can quibble about whether it's uh, an admission in the lay sense of the term, but typically, a party's statements concerning past events are admissible. That's absolutely correct, and yes, sir. so the trial court, regardless of whether anything else was subject to being admitted could consider that testimony and and that testimony was well that testimony that testimony was as I recall it and correct me if I'm wrong because it always helps me to make sure I'm understanding it correctly is that uh, the child was with the mother they were in the, they were in the home the mother took drank vodka went to sleep and the next thing she knew the child wasn't there um, we we don't know how much time elapsed
6: through all of that but Uh, It was, she put her her child to sleep, she took a double shot of vodka, and she went to sleep herself, and she doesn't remember anything else, and her her mother woke her up uh, and said, the child's at the hospital, why is the child at the hospital? And she didn't remember any of that. That evidence doesn't establish anything for purposes of an adjudication. We can certainly say it's not the prettiest picture for a parent, but it doesn't establish under the law, under the rule of law, the neglect or abuse.
1: Is it your contention then that you could not find the existence of neglect on the basis of a parent having consumed alcohol to some degree, and then uh, not being aware that the child was being removed from the house until the child had been taken to the hospital?
6: It, It is so difficult to say that a parent who puts their child to sleep has a, a drink, goes to sleep themselves, must be aware of, of all of those kinds of facts. Even in, in Stumbo, decided by this court, the court recognized that every deficiency of a parent does not automatically uh, rise to the level of neglect. Um,
1: I, I, I do and want to address and, and Before and before you do that, Justice Hudson had one other question I wanted to get in, and it's just a question of what does the record reflect. There was some discussion with your colleagues about whether the uh, uh, evidence that the records had been admitted at the non-secure custody hearing before or after the appointment of counsel. Can you shed any light on that question? Um, Your Honor, I I can only
6: suggest that all of that occurred on the same date when the mother is served with process, her counsel is appointed, um, and the non-secure custody order is entered with the Reasonable Efforts Report um,
1: at that hearing. So, so at least as you understand it, the record is not clear as to whether the mother had counsel at the time that hearing was held? Counsel
6: was appointed at, at that point. Now, what transpired in terms of uh, the chronology of those events? Uh, generally, these initial non secure custody orders uh, that are entered are entered without <coughs> counsel. Most of them uh, don't involve counsel at all, the initial one. Um, I, I, I want to speak uh, to a couple of other matters important the dependency uh, adjudication. And I think the Court of Appeals has asked guidance of this court, both Judge Dietz and uh, Judge Inman uh, asked that the legislature of this court give some guidance in the principle. And I want to suggest to the court that dependency is substantially different than neglect or abuse. When we talk about conditions that are alleged in a petition, dependency is a condition where there's a child who has no parent and no one else as an alternative caregiver to take care of them. Why would we adjudicate a child as a dependent if they've got somebody who can care for them at any point up to the point of adjudication? What is the purpose of that adjudication? Whereas with neglect, we're saying here are the conditions that existed that caused us to file this petition. And we filed this petition based on these conditions, not on, and if the cases AW uh, and JR were neglect cases, we're not talking about that neglect, that condition that existed that caused the petition to be filed. In this case, this, this court and, and department had sufficient uh, opportunity for non-secure custody order under the neglect uh, and abuse allegations without regard to the dependency. They simply did not take the time to even investigate that issue, and they say that very clearly. We just didn't have time to do that. We don't know, I couldn't tell you whether they were good or they were bad, that's in the record. In in fact, uh, the Goodman home was approved in the record on May the 15th by signature of a department's agent.
4: What Uh, importance, if any, should we ascribe to the fact that the trial court said it didn't have time in its estimation to uh, allow a home study to be conducted uh, and didn't authorize DHHS to do that because of the exigency of the circumstance.
6: I, I don't have a bit of problem with that, but, but they can control that with the abuse and neglect. And in fact, by May the 15th, they knew that there was an alternative caregiver for the family, uh, for this child. I also want to, to, to suggest that the mother did, in fact, propose prior to the filing of the petition, and that there, were, there was an alternative caregiver prior to the filing of the petition, and at the time of the filing of the petition. Cyrita Brown, the godmother, was proposed. And this family, when we look at the, uh, the, 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 the rule, I guess, that says, well, the mother or the parent has got to suggest the caregiver, really what we're saying is we're not going to allow uh, uh, an alternative caregiver to be part of the plan that the Department of Social Services or DHHS has. We're going to uh, require some input by the family. This family showed up for this mother. and I, If you look at the orders, you will see family appearing in court with this mother. You will see family going to the department uh, wanting to take care of the child, and they did that prior to the filing of the petition. Um, so. The, the dependency here did not exist. Dependency is a, is a situation that was not necessary for this child. The evidence indicated it wasn't necessary. And What was the purpose of it? Why do we have the dependency? So it is an ongoing type of situation. If at the adjudication, the child's not dependent, why adjudicate that child dependent? There's no purpose to it. It doesn't fit anything in the statute for why we have dependency as an adjudication. I've not had an opportunity to talk about the reunification issue. That is critical in this case. This is a mother who deserved an opportunity. Uh, She deserved that opportunity to be around her child, but she deserved an opportunity to show that she was not the person that everybody thought May 7th represented or May 8th represented. She was that person. Uh, who could be a good mother, who was a good mother, who, uh, uh, given the opportunity, she showed her participation, her efforts, uh, she showed she was deserving of that opportunity. There was no finding of a lack of success by this mother. She went above and beyond under the circumstances she had. I ask you to affirm
2: the Court of Appeals. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal?
3: Um, Yes, Your Honor. I'm going to try to limit this to one minute, if that's possible, so my co-counsel can have a a minute, his minute as well. So, first of all, the order on page 35, the order of May the the 10th, does state that Attorney Jaron Dickerson was present for the mother. So, I assume, some from that order it appears that that attorney was present and representing the mother. Um, It's not correct that the only evidence in the medical, the only evidence that supports the adjudications of abuse and neglect was the medical evidence. The mother's statements, which are admissions of a party opponent, do show that the mother um, had custody of the child um, on the night in question. The mother did drink the double shot of vodka, went to sleep, and when she woke up, the child was severely burnt. So all we need to show for abuse and neglect is the mother had custody and control of the child, and the child was severely injured. The only thing in the medical records necessary to prove neglect and abuse is the actual diagnosis. The stuff about the neighbor statements is just irrelevant. There's no indication that the court relied on that. Um, I I, I understand.
5: I want to, I know you only have a minute, but I understand the position that hearsay evidence is relevant on the question of whether the trial court erred in eliminating reunification. But what's your response to the argument that the trial court's findings don't meet what's required under 7B-901C to, to eliminate reunification at this stage?
3: Well, the you know, response is just basically, again, when I wrote in, in the brief, that if you look at the catch-all provision, it does say anything that can enhance abuse and neglect. And I think what we have here is severe injury injuries to an infant and the mother not even knowing how they happened, and I think that's another, you know, issue. Um, whether she was not being truthful or whether she blacked out, I think both are very, e- either option there I think is very um, concerning when we're talking about reunification efforts with the small child.
7: And I see your time is up, but I do want a clarification. I heard uh, the counselor on the other side speak to this, uh, the burns like a, a sunburn. My understanding is third-degree burns actually burn away the skin. Uh, can you comment on that in your last three seconds? The only thing
3: I know is this is partial thickness burns. That was what was in the medical records. So I, don't, I didn't see anything that said second degree, third degree. Frankly, if they did, I don't know if that would mean that much to non-medical professionals such as myself. But we do know that, they, that there was a healing process that took several weeks. And then the wounds had to be cleaned and debrided, especially in the left foot. Um, and that there was a foul odor coming from the, the feet, especially the left foot. And this didn't resolve itself for a period of weeks.
2: Thank you, Council. Thank you to everybody. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Miller, we particularly appreciate you coming up from Greenville. Hope you've enjoyed the mountain view.
6: Thank you very much, Judge.
2: Mr. Clerk. All rise.
1: Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in
2: recess until 11 a.m. God save the state and this honorable court.